I think you should push yourself hard, but only to the extent that you can still work hard and play hard, right? Once you lose that ability to have a meaningful personal life, then that's just not worth it. Like, you know, uh, if you only live once and you waste it all at work, then you're going to regret that. Um, but uh, for students, particularly, I think that we have a university system, not just at U of A, but around the world that puts so much pressure on people to define themselves um, by doing a lot of things. And I think that we need to do a better job of communicating to students that that's not how you end up being successful. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Um, okay, Ron, so do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Rowan. Um, I was the Student Union president last year, and I just uh, convocated from U of A after six uh, very exciting and wonderful years. So glad to be joining you. I graduated this year, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Um, is it okay if I ask what, what your program was? I was a, uh, I started off in a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, uh-huh. um, ended up realizing though that you know, history was my real passion. And so I finished with a Bachelor of Arts with distinction in history with uh, political science and econ minors. So I want to have the econ in there. It's employable, right? Yeah, I see. I see. Um, when did you, when did you uh, change your program? Um, like what year? It was, was it the second year or the third year? I actually changed my program, I think, uh, at the beginning of my fourth year. Um, at the time, I'd been doing so many history credits anyways that it actually didn't make much of a difference in terms of what courses I had to take. So it didn't extend my degree. And uh, I just decided eventually that if I ever wanted to do a master's degree, it was going to be in history, uh, that I loved studying history. I loved working with historians. Um, it was something I really enjoyed and that kind of worked towards some of my career goals as well. So. Yeah, I, uh, in the Faculty of Arts, it's quite easy. You just fill out a Google form saying you want to change your major. And so at the beginning of fourth year, I did that. And uh, I've got no regrets. Yeah, I see, I see. So how was it like? It Was it um, like you always wanted, you always had the plan to change your major at some point in your degree? Or was it just something that struck you in, in the fourth year? Because I'm asking because a lot of the students take courses that, well, you know, they like. And they always consider it as somehow the the fun course that they can have, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden it just it just comes to them. Oh shit! I I I actually like to do this rather than the first thing I wanted to. I mean, I think that's totally valid. I I've been thinking about it for two years. I just never really got around to it, and I wasn't completely decided. But I think it's it's crazy that we expect people who are eighteen years old to know what they want to do with their life and to not be able to change it sometimes. Um, so that's part of why uh, when I was student union president, um, Abner and I, our VP external then, now president, we worked on our exploration credits project so that people could take some courses outside their major with a little less risk so they could see if that was what they actually enjoyed and what they wanted to do with their life. Um, 
So yeah, it took me a while to decide. It's a big decision. Um, but I think it's something every student should have the chance to at least think about. I know in some programs, it's a lot harder where you have fewer electives, but uh, I think it's an opportunity everyone should have. Like we change so much when we're this age, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't want to lock people into an entire career based on a decision they made when they were 18. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I completely understand. Um, if you were, um, if UFA would ask you right now um, to come and give a speech um, to all freshmen, who are out of high school and um, university, at least to me as a freshman, I wasn't freaking out, but the the idea that I have no clue what's going to happen in these four years, and these four years are quite important years of my life, uh, would make me not want to, you know, challenge myself or just just keep myself in the comfortable spot um what what would what would you do what would you say to freshmen if you if you had the chance to i mean the first thing i'd say is what i always what i always say to anyone going into university is that your extracurriculars and what you do outside the classroom is going to be just as important as what you do in the classroom increasingly nowadays employers aren't just looking for people with good gpas most employers actually don't really care that much about your gpa what they're looking for is people who can demonstrate that they have experience with teamwork um, that they are uh, strong problem solvers and that they have grit and those are things that you can't always just demonstrate through your classes that sometimes to demonstrate them you'll want to go and join a club or join an interest group or uh, join student governance maybe and those are the ways you demonstrate those skills so it has a very practical purpose in terms of getting a job or getting into a grad school but it also has a personal development purpose you know in that uh, you're going to learn how to be a better team player which is an important life skill and you're going to have a good time and make friends for the rest of your life and that's important too So the most important thing I would say is go get involved on campus and don't think that university is just about classes. Um, I'd tell them also to take their academics seriously, though, because even in the first year or two, <laughs> uh, if you don't take it seriously enough, it can cause you a lot of problems later on, as I learned the hard way. I didn't. Uh, I, I was not very smart in my first year about uh, studying and stuff, and that's caused problems later. But, we'll talk uh, about that in a few <laughs> moments, okay. But I, yeah, I would say to have a balanced university experience and be a well-rounded person, you know. Um, nobody cares if you have a 4.0 if you haven't done anything else, especially if you're graduating with a BA or a BSc, uh, which are, you know, there's a lot of people with great grades in those degrees. So you need to have something that actually differentiates you. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. Um, speaking of the extracurricular activities, um, you know, You're, you you were the president of the, of the student union last year. Was it ever um, an idea or, I don't know, somehow, sometimes a goal for you when you went into university as a freshman or even when you were in, this, in your second year? Was it always something in your mind or did it just, just happen? Oh, you know what? We can do this. You know... It's interesting. I think um, every kind of step in my governance career uh, was something that I kind of decided to do pretty late. Um, and it, like one thing just came after another. There was never really a plan, 
which I think in a way is good. I find that people who make the best executives are usually not the ones who always wanted to be an executive. Um, but so I started off in student governance because uh, I got involved in the Organization for Art Students and Interdisciplinary Studies. So it's like ICE or ESS, but in arts. And I was, uh, I had a lot of friends who were involved and they had a cool office and I wanted to hang out with them more. And I was like, yeah, sure. So I became their governance director. So my job was assigning people to committees and uh, recruiting people for governance roles in arts. And in that, I did some interesting stuff. I got to write a new constitution for Oasis. I got to uh, sit on arts executive committee with the dean. Um, all kinds of really fun stuff. And that got and me which year was which year of her program was it? Uh, that was in my second year. Okay. Um, in my first year, I was doing mostly other stuff. So then I, uh, that got me interested in running for council and I ran for council. I also ran for Oasis president and lost, fortunately, to someone who was a better candidate. So that was all for the best. <laughs> um, but I, uh, spent a year on council, uh, worked on some policies. Um, but, uh, the next year there was no one planning to run for board of governors representative. And so, uh, Reed Larson, who was the then student union president helped convince me to run for board of governors. So I ran for the board, and that was a crazy year. That was the year that the UCP got elected, and uh, the U of A got these huge cuts, and everyone was scrambling to figure out how to deal with them. And I was there during that whole process. And I got, frankly, very frustrated with the provincial government in that time. And I realized that if I wanted to make a difference on the issues I was really passionate about, I needed to be able to do something about the provincial government and their decisions. I needed to be able to do advocacy at that level. So I ran for VP External. Um, and that was against my very good friend, uh, Robert Bielak. Uh, and I think this is proof that governance doesn't always have to be hostile or adversarial. We're still good friends to this day. But uh, I won by 150 votes out of more than 5,500. So it was very close. Um, had a great year as a VP external in some ways, a very challenging year in other ways. That was the first year of COVID. And so it was mostly online. It was very stressful. And basically, nobody else wanted to be president. <laughs> uh, and I can't blame them. Uh, it was a really hard year. So uh, I ended up being president almost by default. I ran uh, unopposed. Uh, but I was really passionate about it. And there were a few specific things like exploration credits that I wanted to work on. Uh, and I'm glad I did. So it's a long answer, but I hope it answers your question. Yeah, no, that was, that was actually a good answer. Um, I mean... If you're not opposed, that makes your job quite easier to be elected, obviously. Um, oh, yeah. But at the same time, there is always uh, the need to acquire the trust of the students, as well as, more importantly, the trust of the team that you're going to be working with as the president. So how did you uh, manage to have that? I think the most important thing is in the election, you have to run like you're opposed. So you have to put together an ambitious platform, um, which I think I did. You have to do a lot of consultation on it, which I did. Um, you have to do your absolute best in the election. And uh, you have to make it look like you take it seriously and you're still trying to earn people's votes. Um, and I think I did do all of that. Uh, so that's one part of it, you know, showing that you're not taking people's support and votes for granted. And then the other part, honestly, is that once you're elected, you just have to do a good job. Um, if you do a good job, then the trust and respect comes on its own, I think. Yeah, I understand. Consultation with you, though. <laughs> um, for platform consultation, uh, a lot of people. I mean, most of the faculty associations and SRAs 
um, people on council, uh, really anyone who you think has like a valuable opinion. Um, it, it should be it should be a lot of work if you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. I understand. Um, what about the trust of the team? I mean, you used you were in the council before you become the president, and obviously you were um, technically acquainted with most of the team members. Um, so, do you think acquiring their trust was easy? Like making sure that they they know that. Um, you know, you as a president are willing to put as much effort as you as you can. Yeah, I think that's something that you you have to show it by doing it, right? And uh, I do think I worked. I mean, you know, whatever other things I may have done poorly, I worked very hard as president. I put in a lot of hours, um, and I think that showed for them. But the other thing is that as president, a big part of your job is to act as a mentor and a guide for other people on your team because they'll probably have less experience in governance, particularly at the exact level. So um, providing good mentorship and doing a good job of supporting them when they don't know what to do. That's how you earn their trust. And, you know, I think I did that pretty well. Um, at least I, in hindsight, I, I think so. Uh, so, yeah, it all worked out well. I mean, not being opposed certainly has its blessings and its curses, but I think I made the best of it. Yeah, I understand. Um, now, let's let's go back a little bit to your first year. You said um, you, said you did a lot of um, extracurricular activities. And we don't have to go through all of them because some of them you may not really want to talk about. Um, but what do you think you did that was actually helpful to the, I would say, the general path that you took throughout your program? I would say the debate club was really important for me because that built my confidence so much. Um, it made me a much better public speaker. It made me a much better um, thinker, honestly, because debate involves a lot of uh, analytical reasoning and trying to uh, deconstruct and construct arguments. Uh, and you have to do it under a lot of pressure and you get a lot of practice. Um, it made me better at teamwork because I was working very closely with a partner um, and in very stressful situations when, you know, you've just traveled a long way and you're tired and hungry. And uh, uh, so I think debate, improved me a lot as a person and it made me a way better executive um so if anyone's interested in debate i highly recommend checking out the debate club it's an amazing experience and i definitely owe a lot to it in terms of the skills that i actually used in my day-to-day job as president i see i see um okay now i'm i'm gonna sound a little bit like a stalker but um but (laughs) Um, in your in your Instagram account, uh, you you have well, um, you've written Edmonton Lover in your mm-hmm. um, what's it called information? I would say I don't really know what it is in bio. Um, do you do you see yourself um, settling in in Edmonton? I mean, you're from Edmonton, but just actually staying in, you know, pursuing the rest of your life there. I mean, here. Actually, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I see myself coming back here eventually, but I think it's good, even if you really love somewhere, even if it's your home, to go and uh, explore somewhere different and have like new experiences. Um, and so, you know, I'd like to do my graduate education somewhere else and maybe work internationally for a few years, because uh, I think then when you have that kind of like rich experience around the world, you can come back to the place where you come from, but with a more expanded worldview and with a lot more to contribute. So that's my hope. 
Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, obviously, but I definitely plan to end up here eventually. Uh, but I'd also like to go and have some adventures uh, for a little while well, while I'm young. Um, I, actually, it's going to the, to the, to the way I'm, I'm actually enjoying it. Um, but, you know, um, as a history major, um, a lot of students, well, I'm not a history major, but, but I, I see a lot of the students who are history majors to be interested in different cultures in different, um, I would say, eras. Um, and obviously, they, um, they would like to continue their career and start their career um, in places that they know they have the most access to everything regarding that era because they want to base that career on that era, right? Um, what are you the most interested in? And is there any um, specific country or culture that you think is the most related to that specific field? Well, I think you're definitely right for most students who want to become a professional historian, like an academic historian. I'm not sure if I want to do that. I mean, I'd like to do a master's in history, but I'd probably like to work in, you know, civil service or something like that. Um, so I, I took a pretty generalist undergraduate degree. I kind of studied all kinds of areas and cultures because I wanted to have the broadest possible understanding of the world and of how things ended up way they are today. I did do uh, quite a bit of focus on modern East Asia uh, and um, what's that is it medieval Spain. Sorry. What's modern East Asia? Oh, modern uh, East Asia. So kind of like oh, Japan, uh, Korea yeah. in, in the last kind of 400 years or so, um, which is really interesting and very important to understand now, obviously, when China is such an important uh, force in the world and you know to understand uh, the history of that region I think is really important to understanding what's going to happen in the next hundred years so I always really loved that uh, I also studied Eastern Europe a bit um, which you know has become extremely relevant now but I was I was a bit of a generalist I didn't really focus on a specific area I've been thinking of things to focus on for a, a master's thesis but um, it wouldn't really be something I had to focus on as an undergraduate yeah I understand um okay now let's change gears um a little bit so you became the president of the student union and as you said it was a stressful year most of um the i would say the objectives that you had were supposed to be pursued online um written remotely and um, obviously it's just one year you have to get adapted to the situation as well um, do you, and it's not all about politics, but it's about government and being a leader and directing as, as an association, right? Um, do you think, um, there was any part of that role that made you actually understand that, okay, this is like the maximum of the interest that I have in government? And it, I don't think it's going to be more than that. Hence, I think history would be a better career. History would be a better major for me if I pursue. Well, I think what was, what was actually interesting about it is that in some ways I found I was learning just as much about uh, politics by studying history as I was about studying political science. Um, I just found it uh, a little more compelling 
in that there's a lot more like there's more of a kind of narrative or story element to it which uh, I find really like interesting and nice to deal with um I wouldn't say that my job had much of an impact on me changing my major um I I think I probably would have done it anyways uh but you know there there were definitely times as president where I was like wow I uh maybe politics is not the best career path. Um, but there were also other moments when I was like, wow, I really love this. Like it's an opportunity to help people and to, to make a difference in people's university experience. And that's a huge privilege. So, you know, there were bad moments, but they were offset certainly by a lot of good moments too. Yeah, I understand. The reason why I'm asking is that um, there is this um, quote from Jordan Peterson, um, which says when you're young when you're in your 20s push yourself to the extremes of whatever you want to do i don't know work 10 hours a day 12 hours a day and understand um see how you can um uh, how i mean see what is your um what your optimal level of functionality is overall um and a lot of a lot of the students that I've seen who are very heartbreaking, they burn out and they feel they have reached to this dead end and they just stop um, doing whatever they were doing. All of a sudden, just change gears so fast, so rapidly. And it just, it just feels like there is a lot of talent being wasted in those individuals just because they are in a very um, hard emotional situation. Did you ever have that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first thing I say is Jordan Peterson is wrong about that. Uh, I mean, at least I think so. Uh, like, part of being in your 20s, it's not just about working as hard as you can, it's about enjoying life. Like, you have life experiences that you can never replace if you miss them. Um, and so spending all of your time at work like you can never get that time with your family back, for example. Uh, so I don't, I don't advise that at all. Um, I think you should push yourself hard, but only to the extent that you can still work hard and play hard, right? Once you lose that ability to have a meaningful personal life, then that's just not worth it. Like, you know, uh, if you only live once and you waste it all at work, then you're going to regret that. Um, but uh, for students, Particularly, I think that we have a university system, not just at U of A, but around the world, that puts so much pressure on people to define themselves um, by doing a lot of things. And I think that we need to do a better job of communicating to students that that's not how you end up being successful. That you're absolutely right. If you burn out, then you're not going to be able to exercise your full talent. And especially if it affects your grades, one semester of burnout can impact the rest of your career. Um, but we also need to communicate to students that depth is more important than breadth in a lot of ways. Like it's much better for you to be really involved in one or two things and do a great job than to be involved in a thousand things superficially. Um, and I think that's not a message that we do a good job of. Like a lot of students think, well, you need to have the biggest possible resume. And so they take a bunch of resume boosting things and then don't end up doing well in any of them. Um, so I think that in a way we need to do a better job of like helping students understand what the expectations are coming into the university. And this is something that elite universities, like if you go to Harvard or Yale or whatever, um, this is really what sets them apart. It's not the quality of the classes. That's basically the same. 
um, it's that you have a huge amount of elite individualized advising to help students understand what they need to do, what their ambitions are, and how to how to realize them. A university like U of A doesn't really have that, um, particularly after the cuts. So we need to find a way to do a better job of explaining to students how to succeed in university and what they actually need to do so that they don't burn out like that. And they don't think that that's what's expected of them. Because you're right, it's a huge problem. And we need to do better at not putting people through that. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I just it's 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 something very frustrating if you see that your friends are going through and um, um, it just becomes hard to um, to observe sometimes. Yeah. Um, OK, um, did you ever. OK, now it's becoming quite like a vulnerable conversation, like a therapy. <laughs> but did you ever get uh, imposter syndrome? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's hard not to. Uh, but I think it was less bad for me than it was for a lot of people in governance. And I think the reason for that is I worked in the provincial government a uh, fair amount before I went into governance. So I was an intern in the premier's office and the minister's office, and I was a page at the legislature. And I also worked through governance quite slowly as I made my way up. Um, I think the main thing that I realized eventually was, oh, these are all just people. Like, they're not special. They're not uh, somehow different from anyone else. And in fact, uh, a lot of the people involved in politics are not as smart as you or I. <laughs> um, and, you know, in a way, dealing with a provincial government that was making a lot of mistakes and doing a lot of clumsy and foolish things, it helped me overcome my imposter syndrome because I was like, oh, well, I would never have done that. Uh, and I'm just a random guy, but I mean, so clearly my, uh, I can't be that much of an imposter if, you know, people who are running the province are making those mistakes and I wouldn't. So, um, in a way that actually helps me overcome my imposter syndrome, which I've always thought in hindsight was a bit funny. It's great. actually. Um, when did you start your governing career? Was it in high school? Uh, no, I wasn't really involved in student governance in high school. Um, I, I did some other things, but uh, I, I, uh, I, I didn't really have the greatest high school um, career. Like I was an okay student, but not a great one. I was involved in debate in high school, but not at an elite level. Uh, I really kind of hit my stride in a lot of these things in university. So I really got involved in governance in second year with Oasis. I see, I see. Um, going back to the imposter syndrome, uh, you know, um, we're humans, we make mistakes sometimes, and um, it is always important to, first of all, maintain your own confidence, uh, specifically when you're leading a group, when you make a mistake, and as well as that, make sh making sure that the you're on the same page with the team um that they know that you have made a mistake and um i don't know for example you you, you you're sorry and um but we need to move on we need to do something either to to fix that problem or um to just move on because it's something in the past um did you ever have an experience feeling that oh yeah uh several times um, you know, I can just give you one example, which is uh, when the Omicron variant arrived and uh, we put out that call to um, move classes online for two weeks, very controversial. 
in hindsight, it was the right decision. But at the time, you know, we weren't so sure. Uh, but there were a lot of people that we should have probably talked to about that first um, that we didn't have the chance to or so it felt like. And, you know, in hindsight, that was a mistake. We should have at least given them a warning or a heads up. Um, and what I did when that happened, I just went around and apologized to them and said that, you know, we should have done better at including them in the process and uh, that we would next time. And I think that being willing to just apologize and admit to having made mistakes is really important, as, as particularly as men, you know, we're often raised to believe that people will think we're weak if we apologize and acknowledge mistakes, but the opposite is actually true. If you're never willing to apologize, if you always have to seem like the strong guy, it actually just makes you look kind of weak and ridiculous to everyone else. It makes you look like you're in denial and nobody likes that. So um, that was kind of an important moment to me when I realized that if you want to be respected, then admitting that you are human and make mistakes actually will increase the respect and legitimacy that you have. And there were a lot of times when that happened throughout the year, like just off the top of my head, I could think of at least like five mistakes that I had to go and apologize for. Um, and I think that's normal in any leadership position. You need to be prepared for that because every leader is going to make mistakes and you need in advance to agree with yourself that you are not going to put your ego above trying to you know, help the organization and people uh, move on. So it happened quite a bit. Um, and, you know, it's not an easy thing. But uh, that's the advice I would give to anyone in a student leadership position. You know, always be willing to apologize and people will respect you more for it. Talking about that approach, it's uh, I agree with that. But at the same time, um, well, I'm not in the position of criticizing the society because I'm just a student. I'm just learning. Um, but it's as, as we're all in a position of criticizing society. Um, but at the same time, uh, there is this stereotypical uh, vision. I would I wouldn't say vision, but display of um, alpha male. I would say. Have you seen Peaky Blinders? That's no, I have not. But my dad loves it. Okay, that's like the top top leader in that that can be suitable for any kind of organization and any type of leadership it's the it's the leader i i would say it's like a dictatorship at that at least but um it's something that the society is implying that okay we need these men and um these individuals who are capable of making decisions and never being um wrong sometimes things go wrong not because they made a bad mistake but because the situation went against that decision and hence they have a second plan and it's always working out everyone feels safe with them and i think that is a very big um i would say obstacle for people who are actually trying to run for presidency of an association or just just for a club um which is which sounds very preposterous to me at least oh you're right i mean it totally is this is it's fiction right it's uh but the problem is a lot of people don't think it is. And when you try to be a leader in like that, like never acknowledging mistakes, um, you end up having to pretend that you're right when you're obviously wrong. And if you're running an organization that way, you're probably running it through fear and punishing people who disagree with you and go against you. Um, then you end up in this position where people are scared to give you bad news and are scared to tell you you're wrong. And uh, so you end up with this really kind of messed up uh, leadership system where decisions you're making aren't based in the truth or reality. 
and uh, people only do what you say because they're afraid. So they hide bad news and they don't speak up when they realize there's a problem. So sure, can you run an organization that way? Like, yes, but it's going to degrade its effectiveness a lot. It's going to lead to people making stupid mistakes that could have been avoided if more open to criticism. And this happens all the time, right? Um, when people decide that their ego and their pride is more important in the long run they just end up making fools of themselves and this happens you know everywhere from global politics like i'd say that's a big part of the problem with vladimir putin's government right uh all the way down to student clubs um uh, that whole approach to leadership always turns out badly and but you're right though it's uh everywhere in popular culture people think that it's how we're supposed to lead and part of that i think is that popular culture needs to change and we need to um, we need to start to idolize healthier ideas of what leadership is. Yeah, I see, I see. Um, there was this book that I was reading, I don't remember its name, but it was saying that um, leading um, a company or a group of people should be similar to a romantic relationship. You know, when you're, you, when you're being insecure about something, you obviously communicate that through your partner. That's the healthy thing to do. And... Um, It, 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 oh, shit. it is always encouraged to communicate that specific problem that you're having, even personally, individually with your teammates. So the team knows your situation. And um, that, that I think that is the part in which you're being strong by being vulnerable, not just because you always know what what's going, what's going to happen or... Um, You should always know a second plan or a third plan. Um, and speaking of that, um, how did you, as a as a leader, make sure that your team your your teammates are doing okay? They're um, they're um, maintaining their mental health as well as their academics. Well, you know, I would just talk to them about it um, personally. I made sure that we all had the kind of relationship where we would talk about those things and. The way I think you can make sure that your team is comfortable sharing that with you as a leader is if you share it as well. So they know it's a place where they can talk about that kind of thing. So I would talk about a lot of the struggles that we were having in my family, for example, with, uh, with health. Like, uh, you know, my parents both had uh, close scares with cancer while I was an executive. So I would talk about that with the team. Um, and, you know, like issues with my classes and my mental health so that they knew they were comfortable. They could say that and it was a safe environment to talk about it. Uh, at every exec meeting, we would have a personal update section where people could talk about what was happening in their personal life. And that was kind of a formal place to make sure there was a structured opportunity for them to say that if they weren't comfortable raising it somewhere else. Um, and by doing those kinds of things, by making sure people had the opportunities to talk about it and making sure they knew it was okay to talk about it, I think we ended up with a really good culture of saying what was really on our minds and how we were really feeling. And that's something I'm happy with. I think we did a good job of that. Yeah, that's great, actually. Um, at the same time, there is always, um, you know, it's, um, okay, um, it's like, you know, for example, one of your teammates is going through a problem and you know it's quite hard. But at the same time, they have responsibilities, for example, and they need to fulfill the res those responsibilities. Um, I mean, if you are the CEO of a company, for example, and you know that your vice president is going through a divorce or something, it's 
and they're in a very bad emotional and mental state, it is logical to say, okay, you know what, take two days off and recover and come back. But at the same time, I think being a student um, is like running a marathon. It's we I, I, at this I cannot take like two days of recovery. I I I'm in the constant pursuit of receiving things, doing them, having a little bit of the rest, and then doing it again. It's like I'm constantly in this marathon. It's uh, I need to um, maintain my pace. At the same time, I need to make sure that I'm not doing too much. But at the same time, it's life. Sometimes there are a lot on my plate and it just becomes draining, but I still have to keep on moving with the school, right? How do you manage to keep, I would say, a teammate of yours accountable if you know they, they're going through a rough time, but at the same time, they need to do something about their responsibilities? Well, I think what's important is if they're really doing their best or not. Um, and you should be able to tell that if you know them well. Uh, at the end of the day, if someone really is doing their best, then there's no point in pushing them too much harder because then it's going to be what you talked about earlier. They're going to burn out and uh, their work is going to go down in quality quite a bit. And then that's going to be a problem for the organization. So pushing people past their breaking point is not smart, um, partly because it's just not kind to them. But most importantly, from the perspective of the organization, because then they're not going to be able to do their job well anymore. So um, that's, I think, a big difference between running a team and being a student is that, uh, honestly, university can be a very unforgiving place um, to students in terms of their coursework. But that doesn't mean you have to run a team that way. Uh, you can choose to give people more leeway and compassion than the university system does. And uh, that's what I generally tried to choose to do. Um, obviously, you know, there are limits, like you got to make sure people are giving 100%, but you shouldn't expect them to give 120%. Um, at least that's, that's how I would put it. Yeah, makes, ma- makes more sense, obviously. Um, okay, now, okay, um, a, a small question, and then we can somehow change gears. Um, there is always this stereotype about university elections that um, popular students get elected because they're because they're popular because they have gone through a lot of clubs um, because a lot of people know them a lot of and most of them um, well a lot of there are a lot of nice people in the world so if you're being nice at the same time you're managing to hang out with a lot of people and have a lot of social interactions I think your odds of being successful in a, in a um, university election would be very high did you find that working for you at least working for someone is 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 it is that is it something correct to say or is it a stereotype um it's partly true in that to win an election you need to have a team right you need to have a team of people who support you and are willing to work for you as volunteers and to have a team of competent people you need to know a lot of people who are competent and that's not something that's going to happen on its own. Like if you want to have that team, then yeah, you're going to have to do the work. You're going to have to be in clubs. You're going to have to probably some prior governance experience, but that's not unique to student governance. That's true of all politics. Um, You know, it's extremely rare to see someone with no other experience in community work or in community groups getting elected to political office. 
um, just because how are you going to build a team that way? But people think of the elections as popularity contests. I don't think that that's true. Basically, it's because no one has thousands of friends, right? Even the most popular person has maybe a couple hundred acquaintances. Um, and in the election I ran against Robert Bielak, for example, for VP external, there were like 5,555 votes exactly in, uh, in the last round. That's way more people than I could ever have as friends. So what actually matters is the quality of execution of your campaign uh, and the ideas that you're bringing to the table. People will vote based on those things. So, you know, have good posters, um, have a good team with a strong ground game, do a lot of one-on-ones, um, have a good website, and most importantly, have good and interesting ideas to share with people. Um, that's how you win the election once you have the team. So does popularity make a difference? Yes, but that's not unique to student politics at all. It's just a reality of life that politics is a social activity. And so socializing and having a lot of people on your side is the way that you win in any kind of politics. It doesn't matter whether you're running to be, you know, your discipline club president or the prime minister. Uh, that's always going to be true. Um, and I think sometimes it's a way that people try to delegitimize student politics, right? They say, oh, it's all a popularity contest, to which I would say, well, a lot of life is a popularity contest inside and outside the university. Um, that doesn't mean it's not important. And you also have to ask, do people deserve that popularity or not? Like, if you get your popularity by doing good work with people who respect you, then how is that unjustified? Um, so I, I, I guess my answer is it's partly true. Um, but to the extent that it's true, I don't think that it's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. Um, okay. Now let's, okay. Now let's go into an interview phase in which yeah. I ask you hypothetical questions and, and you just respond. And at the end, I, I, I can see if I can hire you as my CEO. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Um, but, but okay. A teammate of yours, um, has made a mistake and you're the only one who is aware of it. Uh, what is your approach toward that? It would really depend on how bad the mistake was, but I would try to work with them to find a way for them to fix it. And in doing that, I would try to balance kindness and firmness. Um, the kindness, because making people feel even more bad about a mistake than they already do generally doesn't help. They're already going to feel bad and you telling them more that they messed up, you know, it just makes them feel worse without actually accomplishing anything. Um, but you also need to have a level of firmness where you make them understand that there are consequences to the mistake and that they have a responsibility to make things right. Uh, and if you have too much kindness without firmness, often people are not going to take things seriously. They're not going to work hard enough to fix mistakes. But if you have too much firmness without kindness, then you push people towards burnout. Uh, you make them feel hopeless and you make them less likely to come forward and tell you about mistakes in the future. So I would balance those two things and try to collaborate with them to find a way to help them with uh, whatever the problem they had was. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, generally, I think if there is a solution, then you'll find it that way. I see. Um, now, the same scenario, Timmy the Viewers has made a mistake, but not only you, but the team is also aware of it. Um, now, it's not your call and it's not your approach only. Um, what do you think, how do you think you can contribute to the team's approach toward that specific event by making sure that you're also being heard and you're being the most useful to the team? I think, uh, 
it would really mostly be the same thing. Um, but there would be a focus on solutions. Um, so again, instead of trying to make the person who made the mistake feel bad, you'd want to put a focus on saying, okay, you know, I think we all acknowledge that a mistake has been made here, but, uh, I'm not interested in assigning blame. Instead, let's try to find out how we can fix this. And then you give the person who made the mistake, the opportunity to fix it, uh, which will make them look good. And it will demonstrate that they're still reliable uh, and they're still capable. Um, so I'd make sure to do that. And, uh, I'd also make sure afterwards to um, make sure to have a conversation with that person, but probably also a discussion in the team about what we learned from it and how we could all make sure that we changed our processes so that something like that wouldn't happen again. Because that's also good. Then you remind people that they could have made a mistake too. Um, and, you know, most of the time, people should have some sympathy and try to learn from others' mistakes instead of just going, oh, I would never do that and making fun of them. So, you know, I mean... Occasionally, there are things that are so terrible that no one else would have done it, but that's very rare. Yeah, I understand. Um, okay, this question is going to sound quite um, vague uh, because... Okay, so my question is, do you have any regrets about university? And the, the follow-up statement is that I understand that your decisions are... You make decisions, obviously everyone makes decisions in the situation, in a situation that they think and they believe that they're making the best possible decision. So we're technically on the pursuit of choosing our regrets, I would say. So maybe if you have done something different, you may have different regrets. So, but overall, generally, do you think you have any regrets for the university? Yeah, I mean, just two I can point out. I did not take my academics seriously enough in first year and to a lesser extent second year. Um, you know, I was dumb. I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I was, uh, you know, my grades weren't terrible, but they were not great. I could have done better if I had really applied myself and I didn't. And now I'm going to pay the price for that, right? Like there's a lot of uh, things for graduate school, for example, where you need a certain cumulative GPA uh, and they do consider your first two years. There's a lot of students who get told, oh, well, only your last two years really matter. Um, that's not true. Your whole degree matters and you need to try to get good grades all the time. So that's a regret. Uh, don't, don't do that. Um, you always need to take academics seriously. Like at the end of the day is why we're here. Uh, so that's a regret. And, you know, there were things, um, as president as well that I know I could have handled better. And obviously, you know, I have some regret for those. Like one thing is I wish I'd been able to do more with childcare, uh, which was in my platform, but you know, I wrote that whole platform when we thought COVID was over and then COVID came back with a vengeance and so much of our year ended up being about trying to deal with COVID. So really I have a lot of regrets that are partly I think my fault for not anticipating that and not dealing effectively enough with balancing issues around COVID and other issues we had to deal with. Uh, so there are things that I wish I'd been able to do as well. And as an executive that I wasn't able to get around to, but uh, you know, future teams will be able to pick up the baton on those. I hope. Can you elaborate on that uh, childcare program? Yeah. So I wanted to do a lot of work as president to expand access to childcare. I was in my platform. Um, we campus. ended up doing most of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. For students with children. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot that we wanted to do. Uh, that ended up not happening because COVID took up so much of our time and energy. 
And that was one of the, that was the biggest thing that I wanted to do that was in my platform that I regret not being able to do more on. Uh, and, you know, at the time, I thought I was doing my best to balance COVID and all the other issues we had and trying to manage that. But, um, you know, I, in hindsight, it's always possible to have done better. And, you know, you can always look back and identify ways you could have done better. And I do obviously wish I had because we have to give our absolute best to students. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, like I said, also mistakes are going to happen and you have to be able to forgive yourself. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As I said, it's it's the collection of regrets that you choose and you have to live with, which is totally fine, because if you haven't had this collection, you would have another set of collections. So exactly. Yeah. Um, and what are your plans for this year? What are you doing this year? So for this year, I'm taking a bit of time to travel and uh, to get into graduate school, which is a lot of work. So I'm applying to a lot of programs. I'm writing an LSAT in uh, August. So right now I'm basically a full-time uh, student preparing for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, later in the year, I'm going to be working more. Right now I'm working part-time. I'll try to pick up full-time work later in the year and help uh, start saving for grad school, among other things. Um, but this year I want to relax a lot more and have a much more like uh, low-key year, uh, which is a lot less stressful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, honestly, because I kind of need that after uh, a few pretty brutal years during COVID. So that's my plan is get some stuff done, but relax a little bit so that I can come to the next stage in my education with 100% energy. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's all of my questions. I mean, obviously, I, I, I would love to ask more questions, but currently at this moment, I don't have any. So That's fine. Those are great questions. Thank you. you made me think a lot. <laughs> thank you very, very much for um, being our guest. I really appreciate that. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's an honor. Really appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to uh, seeing more of your episodes. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye -bye. You as well. Have a great day.